How is it March 10th already? It's March 10th, right? How is it March 10th already? Time flies when you're having fun. I say, I say let's get it to, to May 10th already. <laughs> let's skip all the... I don't even care. We'll skip my birthday in April. Let's skip all that stuff right. and uh, and get, get right to the uh, summer festivals. Ready for it. Jesperson here with uh, Hoyles and Hicks. Uh, Hoyles and Hicks. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it kind of sounds it's like new. an like a accident injury <laughs> law firm. <laughs> Have you been injured in an accident? Call Hoyles and Hicks. <laughs> who's the heavy and who's the nice one there in your law firm? I don't know. It'd be She's like definitely the heavy. Sarah, Sarah would handle all the business side, and you'd be like the like. Hey, welcome to Hoyles and Hicks. <laughs> Can I get you a coffee? You're not the coffee guy. Definitely John not. Hicks, our technical producer. Sarah Hoyles, we'll talk to her in a bit, our editorial producer. We've got lots going on today. I'm looking forward to connecting with Tasha Carradin coming up in about a half hour. Uh, longtime conservative uh, radio host and political commentator. You probably read her newspaper column. She's all over the place. It was rumored to be considering, or I think was considering, she's confirmed that, a run at the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, well-respected across the country. She's decided not to do it. And it sounds like when Jean Charest officially announces his entry into this leadership race today, he will do so with the endorsement of Tasha Carradine. We're going to find out why. Plus, get her assessment of the race to this point. Dr. Leslin Lewis is in. Pierre Poliev is in. Sounds like Brampton's mayor, Patrick Brown, is maybe, probably going to be in. Is this what the Conservative Party needs to give the Liberals a real run for their money the next time that Canadians vote? on electing a federal government. Tasha Carradine coming up in about a half hour, and Dr. David Novog is going to join us in about 10 minutes, a nuclear safety expert out of McMaster University. If you're like us, our team here, you're wondering, what's the deal with the Russians taking over nuclear power plants, including Chernobyl, and destabilizing them, cutting off power supplies? What's the radiation risk? Not just to Obviously, there's no borders when it comes to, to nuclear radiation and the, the so-called pollution that would come from this. The impacts would be felt around the world. So what do we need to know? What's happening? What does the international community need to be doing? That from our expert out of McMaster coming up in about 10 minutes' time. This show happens because we have amazing sponsors like the team at Bitcoin Well. Always keeping an eye on the news is the team at Bitcoin Well. And always it strikes me as a couple of steps ahead of it. They're looking at the developments around the world, including around finances and people's financial security. We even talk about the Emergencies Act being invoked in Canada. There were implications for cryptocurrency. If you either hold Bitcoin or considering holding Bitcoin, I encourage you to take the questions you may have to Benny and the team at Bitcoin Well. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Lots going on. And of course, we know that uh, we're not going to open every single show with an update on what's happening in Ukraine, uh, number one, because I think people need a break. And at the same time, is it obvious and, and probably apparent, goes without saying, that we also want to know what's going on around us, right? And that includes uh, the bombing of a maternity hospital in uh, Mariupol, the one of the major cities in Ukraine, a city that that certainly has endured shelling and, and bombing and fiery attacks over the last number of days. Sarah Hoyles is keeping an eye on this and has an update for us uh, heading into this Thursday. Uh, Sarah, this is obviously one where I think that you know you you take a look at, at strategic targets being hit, military targets you might call them, and hospitals are not among them. This is one that's raising the ire of not just world leaders, but obviously global citizens as well. 
uh, especially considering the fact that people were injured, people were killed there, including uh, children, women looking to give birth. I mean, this is uh, a pretty deplorable target, to say the very least. Yeah, 17 people wounded thus far in the reporting. It's what we've heard. And three people have been confirmed dead. So, I mean, medical facilities, this is not the only one. Russia is attacking medical facilities, which the World Health Organization says is not okay. That's not, they're not, what Russia is saying is that they were, the hospital was not actually occupied by any patients or doctors, that it was, there were insurgents there. So that's why they attacked. Uh So it's that information warfare that we're talking about, you know, who gets to uh, dictate the narrative. I'm curious to see uh, a story uh, this where people will land. Uh, this is one where uh, closer to home, uh, a story that that obviously broke the hearts of, of Canadians. Uh, the crash, uh, the bus crash uh, near Humboldt, Saskatchewan, that claimed the lives of, of so many young people. Uh, that Humboldt Broncos bus crash obviously brought a nation together. And it also, uh, I think, opened up debate uh, regarding the fate of the man who was behind the wheel of the semi-truck that caused that crash, uh, Jaskrat Singh Sidhu. Now, he has uh, pleaded guilty in the crash. It's, it's obviously uh, nobody's sitting here trying to compare pain. Uh, nobody feels the pain more than the families uh, that lost these, these young people. Uh, but uh, this driver had made it clear Uh, I think mostly through the public statements of his wife that they were doing their best to stay in Canada after he served his sentence. And uh, that's not going to happen, Sarah. Yeah, so far, the Canadian Border Services Agency has rejected his ask to stay, to stay put in Canada after he finishes up his sentence. And that that request has been rejected. He has said that Sadhu has said that he will be challenging that decision in federal court. Can I uh, this this is a tough decision, I know, because a lot of people and and I feel like when we have this conversation, uh, friends of ours, personal friends of ours lost a son in that crash. Uh, As a matter of fact, two families that that we consider to be personal friends. And so it's it's obviously a very difficult situation an impossibly difficult situation, Um, even among the families, uh, the, the bereaved families, there's not consensus uh, but there, there certainly have been some strong opponents uh, to Jaskarat Singh Sidhu being able to stay in Canada. Uh, some families on the flip side have said, we forgive him. Uh, th- so th- so it's, it's not a unanimous uh, position that people hold. And I don't know that, that you could say for even a second that Canadians would have a consensus position on this one. Uh, I almost feel like I'm putting my teammates here in a tough spot asking you how you feel about this because I know that this is an emotional debate. But, uh, Johnny, you're making eye contact well, with I me. I almost feel like... How do you feel about I, it? I almost feel like I don't want to comment. It's sad. It's sad on both sides. You know what I mean? And I feel like taking a stance is... I, I don't know. I'll let Hoyles handle this one. Okay, you want to step out of this one, which is fair enough, and I can respect that. Sarah, do you have an opinion, like a strong opinion either way, on whether or not you think that Jaskrat Singh's to do with his guilty plea... Uh, should be able to stay in Canada? Where do you land on this one? I mean, it's interesting. The Hoyles and Hicks law firm. Yeah, Hicks gets the coffee. Hoyles makes She's the, the heavy hard hitter. Calls. H- Hicks greets you at the door with a smile on his face, gets you the coffee, and then Hoyles has to handle all the heavy lifting. So, yeah. Um, he has been tried in a court of law. The sentence was delivered. He is serving that sentence. And 
that is how the justice system works. Yeah. So I feel like, I mean, it was tragic what happened. It was tragic, it, but it was not with malicious intent. And I think that deporting him is beyond, it goes far beyond uh, what, what was decided in the court of law. Yeah. So I, I mean, the significance of this and how it's Canadian sport, you know, it's the sport of Canada. Everyone loves hockey and young boys were killed, majority white. This is going to be an unpopular opinion. Probably I'm probably going to get blowback. Yeah. I kind of, I might even interrupt you because I don't really want to take it there and get distracted, but I want to let, I want to let you make your point. I don't think it's being distracted. No, I know, but I, I don't it's... like when people make it about race uh, because I want to, I, but that's fine. I mean, I want to let you, the program's called real talk. I should let race. you finish. You think that Mr. Singh, you think that Jaskrat Singh Sadhu is being deported because of his race? I believe that the whole thing and the, how much fervor is behind this. It cannot be disconnected from race. It huh. can't be. Um, yeah, maybe. Um, I, I mean, yeah, people, people, you know, because, because the way that we're wired as humans, we do see it, Sarah, right? We, we see people compare Humboldt has become kind of the watermark where people will say, well, we felt this way when 16 people were killed here. Why don't we feel this way when a certain number of people are killed here? Or where's the national outrage when this happens? Or where's the fundraising or the GoFundMe when this happens? And and, and it brings mm-hmm. Humboldt back into the spotlight. Um, I do think that that, in a way, re-victimizes the families, to be honest. And and, and like I said, there's I'm personal not, there's personal connections for me, right? And I'm so I'm, not, I'm not saying that the suffering of the families is not valid. I'm yeah. not saying that the deaths of their children is like is not horrific yeah. and tragic i'm saying yes and it can be both and it's yeah. not either or yeah no i know i just think that if 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 my son was killed uh in an accident in a bus crash and then people were all making the, the outpouring of grief either way uh something about race it's something that would really rub me the wrong way and i i think that's just a fact that's just how i would feel about it i align with you my view aligns with you on the fate of this guy of Jasper at Sings to Do uh, in in like a, a horrific position. Um, quite frankly, you know, we can say whatever we want on this show. Uh, you know, people tiptoe around. The, I mean, I'm surprised he hasn't killed himself, quite frankly. Uh, I would kill myself if that had happened and if I had caused that crash. Uh, looking through a side mirror, looking at a flapping tarp, missing a spot, stop sign, causing a T-bone accident. I mean, what are, what are even the chances on a sleepy Saskatchewan highway that even if you do blow a stop sign, that there's going to be a bus full of people that's going to hit you. You could probably run 100 stop signs in rural Saskatchewan and get away with it 99 times. Like the chances of actually having a crash, the, the chances are so slim. That doesn't matter. What matters is that there was a crash. He caused it uh, undeniably. And it's been a horrific circumstance ever since. But I, I align with you, Sarah. I, I feel like... And I understand the pain of where families are coming from when they're saying that that we don't think you should be able to stay here. I, I guess I understand that in, in, in the same way that if, if if somebody was responsible for the death of your loved one, you probably wouldn't want to see them ever again either. And then at the same time, you know, like people are even saying on our live chat here, like, you know, Darcy says this isn't justice. This is revenge. He says, I hate everything about this case. Whereas Dwayne says, I lost relatives in car accidents and in a way I can relate. So, you know, I mean, uh, Debbie says, I support him staying in Canada. I think he can do good and make a difference going forward. I feel badly for the families. I feel bad for all involved. 
So I get it. I mean, I guess I get it. Sanders says, why should deportation even be on the table? Doesn't seem to make sense. Tracy says it's a touchy topic. I can see Ryan and Sarah's side. I don't even know that Sarah and I don't align on it. I mean, Sarah's making a point that's that's a fair point. Quite frankly, I just every once in a while, I'm just going to say, keeping it real to you, sometimes I just don't want to fucking get into certain things. And I don't feel like getting into the race side of that conversation right now. But then you're probably going to say to me, you fucking hypocrite. The show's called Real Talk. If somebody talks about that, then you should take that subject on. Maybe. You know, Tanya says, I don't have the standard acceptable emotional response to this tragedy for the reason that Sarah states. You know, there absolutely is a race factor at play. You know, you can see people there. You can see it on their faces as they shape their responses. Hmm. Jill says the death of a brown child, the death of a white child not received in the same way. Stating that fact causes offense. Hmm. Johnny, not Hicks, Johnny P on the live chat says, if I was welcomed to another country as a citizen and I committed a serious crime, I would expect to be kicked out after my sentence was completed. I don't know. I can't get on board with it. And like I said, this might, my statement may cause pain to people who I care about, but I can't get on board with kicking somebody out that I'm listening to messaging. I think it's Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but there's some advocacy group right now and there's, there's messaging. They're advertising right now. They're saying stop using the A word. They're saying when impairment is involved, and to be clear, this guy was not impaired, but they're saying when impairment is involved, it's not fair to call these accidents. Stop calling them accidents. You know, when distracted driving is a player is, is a factor, don't call it an accident, right? It's a collision. It's a crash. It was not an accident. Somebody failed in their due diligence or in paying attention. But if somebody causes, can I say, an accident or a motor vehicle collision where they're not impaired, there's no malice. There's certainly no intent. There's an admission. I mean, obviously, he stayed at the scene, obviously. He pleaded guilty. He cooperated with police. He's serving his sentence. Why is he getting kicked out? And what does kicking him out accomplish? What message does it send? What message do we hope to send? Curtis says, kick out the gangsters. This was an accident. Tracy says, for a decade, I worked in an office that had to report individuals for deportation. It's hard to watch men, women, and children cry as they were returned to Europe, Asia, Africa. Huh. Daniel says his employer was riding his ass. They're probably more to blame than him. He was undertrained. He was distracted, trying to do his job properly, keep his tarp tied down. Daniel says, that said, I'm not sure how he missed the sign. Sarah, do you remember, were there rumble strips there at that intersection? There had been a, there had been a previous fatality at that specific intersection. And I know that there were some high like cedar trees or something like that. And, and people investigating the accident, I think we can all probably remember the, uh, the aerial shots. We've seen that accident. There, were, there, were some, there was some sort of suggestion that his vision could have been impeded. There were some tall trees there. And I know that, that, that people had asserted, and I don't remember the details, they're a bit foggy in front of me, but people had said the previous fatality that the province of Saskatchewan had not acted in a way that they thought that they would in responding to that. You know, like we see these circumstances where there's a fatality at an intersection and then either rumble strips will go in or they'll install traffic lights or they'll do something. Um, I can't remember. I don't know. I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you remember? Were there rumble strips? I don't remember if there were leading up to that intersection. I'm, I'm not sure, but does it matter? Yeah. Well, because I'm just, no, I'm just he, saying it. He it, said that he's guilty. He's no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, if there's rumble strips, you're, you're more likely to recognize there's an intersection coming. That's my point. Like, Daniel there, I think it was Daniel was saying, he's just not sure how he missed the sign. And I'm just trying to remember if there were rumble strips or not. Obviously, it would make a huge difference. 
Sandra says this shouldn't be about deportation, period. Yeah, you can let us know what you think about this. Johnny here on the live chat says it sends a message that committing a new a crime in your new country has serious consequences. Sure. But, but this wasn't sexual assault. It wasn't murder. People died. 16 people died. But we consider motive and we consider circumstance in sentencing in our country, right? We do. Yeah, geez. Linda Ray says everybody who's lived in rural areas knows of the facts and that, you know, these terrible corners and these intersections in their areas. She says there is community heartache. You can let me know what you think about this. Deborah says forgiveness is one of the most difficult things for Western society. You know what? It's mornings like this. I'm really grateful we have our live chat. I really appreciate everybody that's chiming in on this. Derek's talking about the premier of Saskatchewan. Fair point. If Scott Moe can kill somebody under the influence, then logically this guy could become the next premier of Saskatchewan. Fair Brenna says, I'm sure there's not a day that goes by that that driver doesn't wish he could go back in time. It's a heavy burden to bear for life. No matter which way you slice it, that guy's serving a life sentence. No matter which way you slice it, he will see that. I mean, I'm not I've never spoken with him. I've never interviewed him. This is speculative, but he will see that crash in his mind every single day for the rest of his life. He will see it in his dreams. It will haunt him. I mean, his life is ruined. He is serving a life sentence. The families that lost their loved ones are also serving life sentences. It's a horrible, horrible situation. Brenda simply says we need to forgive. And Brenda, I agree with you. And also, can we both agree? It's probably easier said than done. You can let me know what you think about this. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. I want to get to your emails on this. I know that many of you are going to have something to say about this, and we want to hear it. I want to tell you about Nate in just a second. We're going to be getting on uh, to talk about nuclear instability and, and some of these plants essentially being taken over in Ukraine in just a second. Right now, if you're considering a change, you know, if you feel a lot of potential right now, you've got a bunch of ideas, but you need that expert influence. You've got drive, but you need direction. You've got talent, but you need connection. If you have dreams to build the next innovative product or solve a world problem, the answer could be lying right now at Nate's J.R. Shaw School of Business. You can find it online at nate.ca. Here, the big factors at play, leadership, connection to industry, and career-ready grads. You're going to walk out of here with a handle on what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur from one of Western Canada's largest business schools, home to more than 6,000 students. It's the Nate J.R. Shaw School of Business. If you and your family are ready to get out of here, you're ready to feel the sand between your toes, you're going to take a week away or maybe a month away and you want to try to do what you can to keep down costs on the home front while you're gone, why not park your car at Jet Set Airport Parking? If you're flying out of Edmonton International Airport, you can book ahead of time for travel all the way through till the end of 2022 at jetsetparking.com. When you do, with at least 24 hours advance notice, make sure you use the promo code REALTALK. That's going to get you parking for $7 a day. $7 a day using the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com. And our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you that St. Patrick's Day is coming up on March 17th, and the celebrations are already kicking off with a bunch of great promos, including an all-you-can-eat St. Patty's Day dinner coming up this Saturday at select Friesen Brothers locations. You can find all the details on their website at Friesen.com. And of course, circle your calendar the first of every month. Don't forget, with a minimum $75 purchase, it's 15% off your grocery bill on the first day of every month 
at Friesen, Alberta grown, Alberta owned. That's Friesen Brothers. Well, you're no doubt, if you're uh, a keen listener to this show, if you're an engaged citizen, you're paying attention to daily developments in Ukraine as the attack, Russia's attack continues, including targeting nuclear facilities. Uh, Dr. David Novog is a professor, research chair in nuclear safety at McMaster University. He's got more than 25 years experience in nuclear energy, safety, the environment of the private and public sectors, as well as in academia. And we're thrilled to have him joining us this morning. Doctor, thanks for making time for us and welcome to the show. You're very welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. You bet. So, I mean, there's a lot of ground to cover here. I think probably most prominently back on February 24th, Russian forces capture the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and civilians like me are going, what on earth? What sort of, why would they have interest in Chernobyl? Can you help us understand why these facilities are being targeted as, as key targets by the Russians? I don't know if, if the facilities themselves are what, what are being targeted. I don't have any real military expertise. I do understand just from the media that there's certain strategic value in the locations around Chernobyl in, in terms of how they approach Kiev from the north. Um, so I, I don't believe they were intending to take over the, 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 the Chernobyl area to, to get a hold of the reactors there. Uh, but but really as a part of some larger goal in terms of their, their military operations. Um, the Chernobyl reactors are not operating right now. They have not operated in, in tens of years, and they've been shut down for a long period of time. Um, that site has had many reactors, not just the one where you know, the accident took place in the 80s. There were other reactors in operation that have since been shut down. And so it's quite a large facility. I, I was there observing it a, a, about a decade ago. Um, you know, with, with, uh, and, and it's right on the highway towards Kiev, like from, from, to, from Belarus towards Kiev. So I, I think it's really just part of some larger goal of the Russian military. What, what's it like to actually tour that facility to, to be on site? I mean, obviously you've got incredible insights based on your academic and your professional career, but even the average person uh, understands that, that one of planet Earth's great disasters occurred right there on that square footage. What was it like for you to be there? Yeah, it's it's really, um, you know, it, it, even though I've studied all of the things and, and that accident most of my life, it, it's really um, uh, dumbfounding the size and, and, and magnitude of the catastrophe that took place on the ground there. There's still huge areas that are unpopulated and unhabitable. Um, and, and, uh, and, and a lot of effort in terms of keeping the, the, uh, the reactors, you know, in a safe condition. Yeah. You just put on the, on the, on the screen there, um, all of the EU has been contributing towards, you know, bolstering and building a, a, a containment structure around that, uh, accident affected reactor such that if things happen, if there's an earthquake or, or, you know, a storm or environmental damage, um, no further radiation would be released from that from that accident site because it is still inside that dome that you showed on the screen there. It is still quite quite radioactive. So, how concerned are you right now with with regards to recent developments uh, directly relating to this Russian aggression, like in the specific context of nuclear security? Where's your head at? Yeah. So the the as part of the International Atomic Energy Agency, every country who signs on to that agency. Uh, including Russia, agrees that in any event they would, you know, you would not purposely challenge the power supply to a nuclear reactor. 
um, or, or its surrounding facilities. And so, you know, it's quite alarming that, that, uh, that, that military operations are taking place in close proximity to those nuclear power stations. Those nuclear power stations can operate without power. They can do many things to keep themselves safe. But in, in nuclear, we're sort of always, we don't want to challenge our lines of defenses. Like we have lines of, we have backup diesel power and we have alternate rate, you know, power supplies and these other things. But, you know, because the nuclear technology, you know, it, it is fairly complicated and, and it contains quite a lot of energy. We're never, you know, pushing the boundaries and testing, you know, one boundary after another. And so we don't like to see um, things like power supplies being cut. It, it, it's, it's not good. Uh, it's not good practice. It's certainly not wise um, to, 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 you know, go down a, a pathway where you're continually taking barriers out of place, safe, safety features out of place. Right. I, I, you know, what? that night, that night that when, when, you know, I think I got the news just like everybody else on Twitter and so on, when you could see like missiles flying by and they said it was a nuclear power station. I had never been to that specific facility. So I didn't know if that was the reactor buildings or, you know, the training centers or whatever around that thing. So I was just as worried as everybody else. I was like, you know, what the heck is going on here? Who, who in their right mind would bring their forces and, 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 and operate like that so close to a nuclear power center? Because you're, you're not just endangering, you know, the people who work there or the civilians, all of your military folks in that vicinity are also, you know, at, at risk if you're going to try to do those kinds of things. You're, you're probably, I mean, you're saying you're worried like everybody else. You're probably more worried than everybody else because you have a more clear understanding of what happens if all hell breaks loose, right? I mean, like if, if, yeah, a, if a missile strike does hit the, the right target or the wrong one, depending on your perspective, if, if it hits where you don't want it to hit, what are the stakes here? So the reactors are, uh, you know, post 9-11, we went through a whole process in the nuclear industry of, you know, how robust are our safety and containment structures that are designed to, you know, prevent this. And, and from any reasonable military strike, the reactors would, would be able to withstand that. But over a prolonged period of many strikes and so on, they just weren't designed for, you know, a military to attack that facility. Um, so, you know, from a single strike or, or from some kind of errant uh, um, uh, you know, munition, I'm, I, I wouldn't have, you know, of course I would be worried anybody would be, but they are designed to, to, to be able to tolerate that kind of trauma. And we, again, just like I said before, we, we purposely in nuclear never try to challenge those barriers. You know, it, it's just, a, you know, even though you've designed them and you put them there, they're there for a reason and you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, test them in anger like that. So, you know, that, that, that evening when I saw the missile strike, certainly I was, I was pretty worried. Um, you know, it, it, like you said, though, that the, 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 the media and, and the, the, the coverage of it at the time was very, you know, uh, scary. And I was talking, you know, after hockey last night, I was out with my hockey buddies and they were telling me, you know, they feel good when they talk to me because I can describe to them what's going on. But they said for the general public who doesn't have access to, you know, pe people like me who can, you know, explain what's what's going wrong and what the potential consequences are. They're like, this, this is real, you know, because on that night they were just as scared or more scared because everybody has in their mind, you know, the, the, the Chernobyl and the Fukushima uh, issues, you know, and, and they can recall them, especially, for, you know, for me, I lived, I was alive. I talked to my students. They weren't alive during Chernobyl. But I remember the media broadcast. I remember the mass, you know, uh, exodus of people and the radiation 
damage that it caused and you know in 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 all of europe and so i i think everybody you know their instant reaction is to have a lot of fear did you happen to watch that miniseries by the way chernobyl yes I, yes it did what it, yeah. it was i mean it was remarkably done from a storytelling yeah. and a production standpoint it was just absolutely incredible was it yeah. accurate so i mean it was i think for any kind of dramatization it was as accurate as it could be i mean they took various circumstances and they combined them into a single event or or they took various people and combined you know combined them into a single person so in terms of the dramatization i think it was it was you know they, they took some liberties to make to make the story you know uh, a mini series but but in terms of the overall coverage I, you know i thought it was decently well done it was mm. yeah it was entertaining and it was you know had had a, had a good grounding and, and factual yeah sure did um it, it, what it i mean i don't want to get too far off course here one of the things that, that reminded me is as is the case with with the crises uh, throughout history is that there are so many heroes who risk their lives or give their lives uh we have no idea who they are we don't know their names oftentimes they're not recognized for it but people that put themselves in in incredible danger uh, to try to save the lives of others. That wasn't lost on me as I was watching that. Uh, let's get back to present day and what's happening in Ukraine right now. This tweet uh, from Ukraine's uh, foreign minister, uh, Mr. Kuleb, uh, Dmitro Kuleb, said the only electrical grid supplying the Chernobyl uh, facility and, and all nuclear facilities occupied by the Russian army is damaged, uh, lost all electric supply, says the minister. I call on the international community to urgently demand Russia to cease fire and allow repair units to restore power supply uh, what's your insight on that that's that's from the foreign minister calling on the international community i mean you're talking the united states britain france canada what's an appropriate response so i i think my first response as a human is i wish i wish there would be a cessation of all hostilities immediately for every reason but from the nuclear standpoint you know the 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 one thing that that kind of a I, it's di a difficult concept to understand is we shut the reactors down, but the reactors still produce some heat, which, you know, if, if, if we take that heat away and, and, you know, cool it, then those reactors will, will stay safe indefinitely. Um, if we jeopardize the cooling, um, of course, the reactors could heat up and, 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 you know, melt, for example, in Fukushima, that was not an accident where, you know, the reactor went through some kind of, of, of uh, you know, pipe rupture or anything like that. That was a prolonged loss of, of our ability to cool the reactor caused by the tsunami. So at first glance, that, that, that notification is, is alarming. But what you also have to recognize is as time progresses after a reactor is shut down, that heat load becomes much, much smaller. So for example, the, the, the reactors in Chernobyl, which have been shut down for dozens and dozens of years, produce extremely small amounts of heat. And therefore our, our requirements, the amount of cooling they need is quite small. And so in, in that case, the, you know, the, the fuel that, 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 that would heat up is in huge, large swimming pools that are filled with water. And even the International Atomic Energy Agency today said they see no cause for concern for the reactors in Chernobyl. Uh, because they've been shut down for so long, they produce so little heat that, that even the swimming pools without our active intervention will we'll keep those reactors safe. So I'm not immediately concerned about the Chernobyl reactors and the lack of power there. I think, you know, in the long run, yes, we, we want to make sure we have an ability to, to bring fresh water to those pools if, if need be over the you know, weeks and months ahead, depending on how long this, you know, uh, Russian invasion takes, you know, goes on for. But I think right now, 
I don't see any safety concern at the Chernobyl sites. What my biggest concern is, you know, the attacks, the cutting power, the missile strikes near a nuclear power plant. It's kind of like a bunch of symptoms of, uh, you know, military actions that are not taking due care with yeah. with, with with the technology, right? Like it's this, and then the stuff last week, and so it just seems like the Russian military. This is not, you know, anything that they're considering in their mind. They're just going ahead and doing what they, you know, want to do militarily. Uh, with, without, you know, maybe considering the ramifications of some of their actions. Yeah, we were just talking out of the gates today about bombing a maternity hospital, like the same sort of a thing. It just feels like it's maybe not even arbitrary. I mean, there there may be so much malice or or such a sort of a psychological impact intended here that they are bombing targets that will that will put that strike that fear in people and maybe cause them to think you know, certain things about this Russian aggression or perhaps some intimidation factor at play. I can't have one of Canada's foremost nuclear safety experts on the show and not ask you about the threat of nuclear war. Uh, We've run some interesting polling. We do a question of the week every week and and some interesting numbers. About a third of our audience, if I remember correctly, uh, is somewhat concerned that that they think it's a, a valid concern that Vladimir Putin could deploy nuclear weapons. Obviously, that would change the game in a big way. How concerned are you uh, that this could become sort of a next level type scenario involving nuclear attacks? I think um, I don't have an immediate concern right now. Of course, you don't know. He seems like a leader who is, you know, uh, um, does whatever he likes, irrespective of the consequences. So I don't I don't have any insight into 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 the the Russian leadership's intentions. Um, I know that. Any such actions like that would be, irre- you know, it would cause irreparable harm to 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 not just Europe but also parts of Russia. Um, so, so I I do believe that 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 the Russians will uh, will will not exercise that option. Um, and and I know the U.S. and European countries are being extra careful to make sure they're not seen as being part of. You know any kind that this is with the with the MiG fighters that the you know that Poland wanted to transfer to the Ukrainians. The U.S. really wants to make sure that they are not, you know, seen to be actively involved in 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 the defense of Ukraine because I think any challenge like that, you know, when when it's I I, I kind of think about it as like a caged and trapped animal. If you're going to push Putin into a corner and and take away you know all his options. Um, that 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 you know that risk may increase and and certainly I hope that that's that's never on the table. Yeah, no kidding, and very well said, uh, Doctor. So appreciate your insight on this. Thanks for. I mean, it's, it's the type of situation when as soon as you invoke, you you know, this is your line of work and your expertise. As soon as people say nuclear, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we use it as a euphemism, right? It's the nuclear option. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. what people see as the ultimate threat to humanity. And and I appreciate your measured and informed response to our questions. Thanks for making time for us today. Anytime, Ryan, if you need me back uh, in the, in the weeks to come, I'm happy to, I'm happy to come back. All right. Well, look for our email because we'd love to have you back. That's uh, Dr. David Novog, a nuclear safety expert. Uh, He's a research chair in nuclear safety at McMaster university out East, uh, as mentioned, you know, quarter century experience in nuclear energy safety in the environment. Fascinating stuff. You can let us know where you're at on that. I've got to see it on the live chat. People are talking about friends of theirs that were in Ukraine back in the 80s when the Chernobyl disaster happened. I mean, can you imagine those firsthand accounts? You wouldn't realize at the time. I mean, obviously now I'm 
going off what I saw in that mini series. So I don't want to get too off into fantasy land, but people had no idea about the implications of it, right? If you if you've seen the show, you know that I don't want to spoil it too much. But if, did you see it, John? Did you watch that show, Chernobyl? M- me it, and my wife were horrified by it. But yeah, like, it's so it was so well done, so well done. And you like, remember that kind of the the, new, the what do you call it? Not the acid rain, but like that kind of rain that was falling, and people was, just had no they had no idea. It was a death sentence for even the guys who worked in the plant. You yeah. just like you. Li- I know they're actors, but you felt for them. Like you'd always yeah. read about Chernobyl, but it it just really put everything into perspective. It was and all the people that were failing everybody in the situation again you know they're actors but you're like just furious at them the whole time that's a sign of a story well told a job well done you know it's not nuclear but still providing power for a ton of people do i dare is kubi energy the solar energy solutions to power your life i've been telling you about kubi the full service contractor for residential commercial solar power systems also industrial agricultural applications they're doing it all I insist that you go check out their Instagram page. They do a great job. As soon as I scroll through, they're like, oh, yeah, they could do that. Oh, yeah, they do that. Right. Tesla certified installers with a great handle on all of the bursaries and grants and incentives. Your journey towards solar could be closer than you think with Kubi Energy. Don't forget, they present positive reflections. The first show of every week. If you've got something that filled your bucket or made your day, you can email it to us. Make sure you note it as a submission for positive reflections our friends at eden landscaping are getting ready for construction season it's going to be here before you know it that means right now their teams are busy their design teams and their permitting teams getting everybody set to go the minute that ground starts to thaw you know sometimes there's delays ahead of breaking ground on a project that you might not consider and with supply chain issues the way they are right now if your build is going to require specific or special construction materials you're going to want to get that process started asap that means today is a great day to go check out eden landscaping at landscape edmonton And if you're one of those that's looking at springtime as an opportunity for renewal, an opportunity to maybe better your chances in the new job market, to pursue a career in a new field that is booming, why not consider the Artificial Intelligence Ethics micro-credential through PowerEd at Athabasca University. You know, AI, it's no secret, is integrated into almost every aspect of our life, but there are ethical considerations with regards to the design of it, the implementation of it. How about that conversation we had on the show months ago about bias and discrimination in AI? That's what this is all about. You can learn at your own pace through the PowerEd program, which is why so many people are going to PowerEd at Athabasca University at powered.athabascau.ca. Well, she certainly qualifies as a big name when you're talking about conservative commentary in the country. And I think a pretty big compliment for Tasha Carradine when her name was being mentioned nationally uh, by pundits and by conservative members alike as a potential leader for the Conservative Party of Canada. We're going to be talking to Tasha Carradine in just a moment. I'm looking forward to the conversation about why ultimately she announced just a few days ago that she would not be seeking the leadership. She will, in fact, be endorsing 
Jean Charest, who will officially throw his hat into the ring later today at an event down in Calgary. Tasha Carradine coming up in just a second. John, let me know when she's ready to rock and roll. We're also keeping an eye on other stories that are making news right now. And of course, Sarah Hoyle's ready to get us up to speed on some of the other stories that people are talking about, including a story that just broke. We're going to get into those details and update on the first person in the world to get a heart transplant from a genetically modified pig. You remember that story? We talked about it a couple of months ago. We do have an update on that story. It's a sad one, my friends, but we'll get there before the show wraps. Right now, it's a pleasure to welcome to the show a public affairs consultant, a longtime prominent political commentator, a writer and speaker based in Toronto. If you pay attention to national federal politics, you know the name Tasha Carradine, making her debut on Real Talk today. It's nice to see you. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been a while since we've had a chance to talk. Uh, You and I, we've spent some time on the radio uh, talking about things like federal parties and leadership races and federal elections. And all of a sudden, your name was in the mix, but on the other side of it as a potential candidate for the leadership of the conservatives. Were you surprised when that leaked or did you leak it yourself? (laughs) I did not leak it. Um, I was a bit surprised initially uh, because I was not seeking this. I was contacted by members of caucus and other people who started asking me to run. Um, I had uh, there had been a notice out that I was writing another book, which I am still writing um, about the future of the Conservative Party. And that notice was put out on Twitter by my publisher. And people took that as if I was running, which was very flattering. Um, But that was not in my plans. And then, however, because of the outpouring of requests, I really did take it seriously. I mean, I've always been interested in politics. I had actually discussed with Aaron O'Toole the possibility of running in the next federal election as an MP, whenever that would be, that was before Christmas. But unfortunately, I could never really pursue the conversation because ultimately he was no longer leader. Yeah, uh, I want to I want to find some balance in this conversation, because obviously I want to pick your brain about your personal experience, your perspective, but also (laughs) your analysis uh, of the state of the party and the future of the party. Like you said, you're writing a book on it. Everybody's taking a look, I think, at the prime minister right now and going there. There are some chinks in the armor. I think it's fair to say that that Trudeau could be beaten in a federal election by a party that had strong leadership and strong support. What do you make of, of Aaron O'Toole essentially being ousted? He he did what he had to do to, to get the leadership of the party. He did what he had to do to run a strong campaign, ultimately, uh, but lost that federal election. Was the writing on the wall for him? I think it was. I think that what happened with Aaron was uh, basically a statement on politics today, which is that you have to be authentic or else you'll get into trouble. And that is really what happened. He ran as a true blue conservative and then he tried to move the party more to the center. I would say more actually to attract voters uh, in the suburbs, in the 905, in Quebec, voters who had maybe been turned off by a variety of things, including the uh, infamous snitch line the Tories had in 2015. A A lot of baggage that was there. But unfortunately, that was taken by many people in caucus and in the party as a betrayal of what he had run on. So then afterwards, it was really hard for him to get things together in caucus. I talked to a number of people, a number of MPs who said that the workplace just basically was very difficult because there was so much fracturing within the party. Uh, so I, w- I don't want to I'm assuming that you're endorsing uh, Jean Charest. I don't want to put put the words in your mouth. Have you made that decision that you will officially endorse Jean Charest as leader of the Canadian or the, the Conservative Party of Canada? 
No, yes, I have. I've officially said. If yeah. you check my Twitter today. I've officially tweeted out his announcement. He's going to be announcing tonight. It's no big secret. And the reason for that is uh, can be summed up in one word, really, and that's unity. Jean Charest has a huge track record of unifying the country. Uh, now he needs to unify the party and the country because our country is fractured. We have issues of Western alienation that are just as serious, I would say, as the issues of Quebec separatism were when Jean Charest in 1995 helped keep the country together during the Quebec referendum. And he acknowledges that. That's why he's actually going to be in Calgary. You know, he wants to make the statement that the West is incredibly important to the party and to him. And um, that appeals to me greatly. I think that we need a national vision for the party and the country and healing those fractures is going to be difficult, but I think he can do it. Yeah, I, I uh, can I say I, I hope to see and I would love to see a healthy conservative party in Canada. I, I seemed at least my memory uh, as a child and as a teen was that there was a, a, some semblance of unity and that conservatives across the country, I think, felt uh, had a consensus perspective on what conservative politics looks like. And, and you know, as well as I do that these days that's being challenged and, you know, people are, are, are found to be not conservative enough and others are, are found to be too right wing or too conservative. And, and you look at a leader when you say somebody has got to win the West and, uh, you know, by the West, we're talking about Vancouver and the prairies. You got to win the nine Oh five. You got to win in Quebec. You got to win in the Maritimes. That's a tall order. I think people right now, is it fair to say, are a little bit confused about what the Conservative Party's all about? I mean, you look at the Ottawa occupation, Candace Bergen, Pierre Poliev, people are going, yeah. what is this Conservative Party? I think, well, that's the issue. I think that Conservatives have always had many stripes. We've had social Conservatives, fiscal Conservatives, Libertarians, and they've lived together in varying degrees of harmony over the party's history and the Progressive Conservative Party. And we saw that then split apart into reform and um, the PCs and then get back together um, with the new conservative party. And I think that right now though, we're being challenged by something else. And that is something that's totally foreign to our political culture. And that is American style populism. And that's what I saw during the trucker convoy. Um, we all know in fact, that a large number of participants and funding came from the United States. And that to me as just a Canadian, never mind as a conservative is serious cause for concern. Uh, I don't want any country interfering in our affairs, whether it's the States, Russia, China, no thank you. We are Canadians and we manage our own affairs, our own elections. And in terms of the populist thread that came through, I mean, there were many symbols of the same type of thing you see with Trump and the Republican Party in the United States. And that is a huge concern for conservatives too on the ideological and um, political level here because we can see what happened to the Republicans in the US. They are no longer conservative. They are populist. They are Trumpian. I, I really don't want my party to go down that path. And I think that people are maybe being lured by that because they think there's electoral success in it. But I disagree. I think that um, it's a short term calculus for serious long term pain. Our culture is not somewhere I'd like to see toxic politics. I don't want to see more division and polarization. I think we need unity, particularly at this time. And we need a party that can represent that. And I think the conservatives are in the best position to do that if they just heal themselves first. Okay. Uh, we, we've got, uh, I mean, you know, Daniel says Jean Charest could take the conservatives in the right direction. And then we've got Jillian who's tuned in. I happen to remember Jillian uh, disclosing to us, uh, she grew up in Montreal, so she knows. Mm -hmm. she, she says uh, Jean Charest is a badass. She says, I still remember him waving that passport and telling us in Quebec that separatism means being willing to give back our passports. She says, you have to be strong as hell to lead Quebec. 
back. I was talking to perhaps our mutual friend, Sapria Devetti, the other day. She, she's mm-hmm. not she's not convinced. She goes, I don't know about Jean Charest, conservative leader. She goes, I, he was the liberal premier of Quebec. Like, what the hell? Oh. She's, she's not 100% convinced. How does he answer that objection? Well, he's answered it quite well. Um, he has the same uh, view that I do, which is you have to be an unhyphenated conservative. Um, you have to be not, that's not a progressive, not a SOCON, not a this, not a that, an unhyphenated conservative. And when he was in Quebec, yes, he was a liberal because there was no conservative party. It's kind of like British Columbia. There is only a liberal party. Now there are different ones since he left. Um, we've got different stripes of parties, including a conservative party in Quebec. But at the time, there was none. And he did a lot of conservative things, including lower taxes, uh, pursue free trade there with Europe when he was uh, in power. And I don't think you can say that he was not a conservative when he was with Brian Mulroney. He was. So um, he has a track record of, of conservatism. And uh, I think that it's convenient for other people to challenge him on that. It's easy, but it's just labels. And you need to see beyond those. It, uh, fascinating, obviously, to see what went down with. I mean, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, and it's a good thing because I'd lose all the time, but I would have put oh. my money on Peter McKay. Uh, I was I was surprised that he didn't win that conservative leadership. And I think that Peter McKay could have done a great job. Uh, I know right now people are it seems to me and this is just from my perch. In, in, in when I'm talking to friends in Calgary and when I'm here in Edmonton. So you may have a different perspective. You're hearing different scuttlebutt, but it sounds to me like a lot of people, including card-carrying members, are handing this thing to Pierre Poliev on a silver platter. I mean, what does this fight look like leading up to September 10th, do you think? Well, it's going to be a two-part battle. One is to sell memberships before June 3rd, and that will be a challenge for all the campaigns, um, you know, growing the base is the key, I think, to Mr. Charest's victory. And it's the key also to the party's victory in the next election. So they really go well hand in hand. After that, it's the charm offensive. It's the barbecue circuit. It's the summer tour. And all the candidates will be going from you know place to place across the country and meeting people face to face. And that's where I think Jean Charest has a huge advantage. He's very personable. He's very affable. And he's very genuine. And people like him. And I think when they meet him, even if they maybe skeptical, or they've been told things about him that make them say, oh, well, he's not, you know, he's not the right leader. I think when they meet him face to face and they, or they hear him in a crowd, they will realize that, yes, he is. And so I think that uh, over the course of the next five and a half months, he's going to win. Dr. Leslin Lewis has her fans for sure. Uh, she, she, I think you, you have to consider her to be a serious candidate, um, though I'm, I'm not convinced that, that she would win this race. She's thrown her hat back into it. She wants another crack at it. What do you make of Dr. Leslin Lewis and, and what she might add to the mix? Well, uh, Leslin Lewis did incredibly well in the last leadership. She surprised everyone yeah. to her credit. She really, um, you, you know, she, some people called her the kingmaker. Will she be the kingmaker again? Cause there, you know, um, there may be other women in the race at this point. I don't know. But uh, I think that she will play a role um, that sort of galvanizes the social conservative element in the party. There's no question she's being supported by Campaign Life Coalition. Uh, They've got her front and center on their website. And there are many people who feel very strongly about social conservative issues who will put her probably their first choice on the ballot. But who will they put on their second as their second choice? It's a ranked ballot. So, you know, her supporters will have to choose and they'll have to look at the different people on offer. And I think that, you know, we have to look at all issues that are on the table, including things like energy policy, environment policy, other things, and not just social policy. So I hope that her voters, uh, her her supporters will look and make a choice that they think will unify the party going forward. Because let's face it, if the party doesn't win, nobody gets to put through any policies they believe in. Being in opposition is not that fun. 
I had this conversation with a guy. I don't, I don't know if you know him, and I'm not trying to make him famous, but his name's Corey Morgan. He pushes a lot of people's buttons. He's a columnist for the Western Standard. You know, buddies with Derek Fildebrandt, and he really loudly went at Aaron O'Toole when uh, Mr. O'Toole, I guess about six months, if I remember correctly, ahead of the last federal election, wanted to get out there and say, here's what conservative climate policy looks like. And we are going to put a price on carbon, and we want to be taken seriously. We acknowledge that's why we didn't win uh, the last election. And I actually applauded it, and I thought it was gutsy. Yet this sort of cannibalization started to happen where all these conservatives just started firing. So anyway, Corey and I are going back and forth and I say, tell me if you had a choice between sticking to your guns on no carbon taxes and no price on carbon or forming government, what would be your choice? And he says, sticking to my principles. And I said, that's all I need to hear. That's all I need to hear. You're framing the choice the wrong way. It's as if there's no carbon price or no carbon tax. Uh, you know, the liberal one or nothing. And that is false because I know what Mr. Sheree is going to propose. He realizes that there is about a 30 year horizon in terms of getting to net zero. He is in favor of oil and gas from Alberta being part of that mix and that equation in our energy uh, sources and our economy. And he doesn't like the Trudeau carbon tax either. He's going to talk about it tonight. He's going to talk a bit about what he sees as the flaws in that process, including the fact it hurts rural consumers way too much. He thinks that there should be changes and he's going to outline those. So it's not as cut and dry as some people would. You know, it's really easy to have a slogan saying ax the tax. Right. But what are you going to do then? And we have a plan and he'll be talking about that. I won't scoop him. <laughs> uh, I, I want to ask you about baggage that certain candidates are bringing. And I want to ask you about two of them. I want to ask you about Jean Chere in a moment. But it's interesting to see Brampton's mayor back in the mix, Patrick Brown, uh, some, somewhat, you know, been exonerated there. They're, they're, he was certainly followed by controversy um, and some allegations around alleged sexual misconduct. Uh, he was cleared uh, for that. And he's uh, reportedly considering entering his, uh, you know, throwing his hat in. Uh, what sort of a ripple might that cause? And, and, and are Mr. Brown and Mr. Sheree birds of a feather. I mean, is, is that choice one A, one B if you're wired a certain uh. way? You know what? I think there's some um, some columnists who have painted it that way, but there's there's no deal between the two. Mm. Um, what you see with Patrick is a lot of strength in Ontario. I know Patrick well, so does Mr. Charest. He was leader of the provincial party for a reason. He has a very strong organization and he speaks to a lot of cultural communities, particularly in the GTA. So he's going to have a really good showing, I'm sure. And, um, you know, I wish him a good race. I wish everyone in this race a good race, because at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want a good showcase of talent for this party and we want to come out united. That's really the objective. That's why I'm excited to be involved too. Even though I'm not a candidate, I'm really excited to be involved in the process and helping Mr. Sheree. Yeah. It's, isn't it fascinating? I think it was 14 candidates, right? Or, or maybe it was 13 or 14 when Andrew Shear won and, and, yes. it, and it creates these, we've, <laughs> we've seen these in, in back in the day with the PC leadership campaigns in Alberta as well. Uh, in particular, the one that Ed Stelmack won, there were a lot of big names that, that, that did, you know, I think that were the favorites, right? I think of Gary Marr and Jim Dinning and, and, all, and all of a sudden Ed Stelmack comes up the middle and that's kind of in a way what Andrew Shear did as well. Do you think, I mean, you want to see a healthy leadership race. It obviously gets a lot of attention. There's fundraising opportunities for the party. You're selling a lot of memberships. That's all positive. But at the same time, do you get a little concerned if there's too many leadership candidates in the mix? Do you have do you have a sweet spot of how many you'd like to see? How many serious candidates? I don't know how many is the right mix. I just do know. I remember the debates when there were 13 people oh, were a little painful. A little, little painful. bad. So yeah. I think, you know, I mean, there, there's probably a limit. You think of certain systems like the American primaries where you can start off with a big field, but it gets winnowed over time. 
Um, you know, in a way, I almost wish we had a system like that because you could start off with as many people as you want, but then essentially at a certain point, they start gravitating and you get a tighter race and you get a tighter field. I don't know who's all going to be in this. I mean, they're, they're right now, I think there's six or seven people who are being talked about remaining. Roman Weber announced yesterday. Um, so we'll see. But I think the biggest goal here, like I said, is really to have a number of interesting perspectives, have good debate and conversation and show Canadians what the party's all about and come out united. And again, like I think the best person to, to accomplish that feat is Mr. Charest, but everyone's going to bring things to the table and hopefully in a respectful way. That's also what I really hope. I want to ask you about baggage attached to Mr. Charest. I mean, Deborah here on our live chat says, I do like him, uh, but please ask Tasha her thoughts on his alleged ties to organized crime, history around corruption regarding <laughs> government contracts, et cetera. There, ha- there have been some investigations. He's not squeaky clean. Yeah. Is that the type of thing that follows a politician like him into this? Well, everyone's got their history. And Mr. Charest has been, uh, as they say in, in French, blanchi. It's been exonerated because the investigation into him found absolutely nothing. And it dragged on for eight years, maybe it was 10. And basically the last few, there was, there was nothing going on. It was just open. One of those, you know, not, they just didn't close it. So it should have been closed a long time ago. It caused a lot of distress to his family, I will say. And now it's done. Um, you know, Patrick Brown too had things hanging over his head. And just this week or yesterday, actually, um, we heard that uh, CTV issued an apology for a story that basically torched his political career, at least yeah. temporarily. So, you know, people all have things that have happened in their past, but I think that going forward is what matters. And I hope that that's what we focus on. Yeah. I, I mean, this is purely speculative and, and it's almost not irresponsible. I can say whatever I want, I guess, but I, but I would your say, show. but I, my <laughs> show can say whatever I want, but, but I would say, I think, and I've said this to Danielle Smith. I said to her, if you didn't cross the floor, I guarantee you would have been the premier of Alberta. I th- same thing about Patrick Brown had, had some of that reporting not come out, the allegations and I mean, that scandal swirling around, he could very well be the premier of Ontario, not Doug Ford, right? That's a fair assessment, mm-hmm. I think, isn't it? I think it's so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So what are the, sta- the time. Tasha, what are the stakes here ultimately for this party? Like obviously every leadership race for a federal political party, let alone the official opposition is a big one. But I th- it, it strikes me and you've alluded to it already that the, the entire the national perception of this party, the definition, the identity of this party is almost up in the air right now, depending on who leads it forward. I mean, what are the stakes ultimately? Well, I think the stakes are the future Canadian democracy. I really do. I think that this party has to present a credible alternative to the Liberal government. Um, I really have problems with the way the Liberals have been have been uh, running things while they're in office. I think many Canadians do, but they have no credible alternative if this party can't get it together, be united, and present a plan that appeals to a broad cross-section of Canadians. Yes, it has to be a Conservative plan, but I think you can craft one that also appeals to people in the 905, appeals to people in Quebec, appeals to Canadians in the Maritimes and Atlantic Canada. I mean, it's it's been done before. Stephen Harper did it. Um, Brian Mulroney did it. So we've got to do it again. So those are the stakes to me. Tasha Carradine, public affairs consultant. She's a principal uh, at, at Navigator, longtime uh, columnist and, and obviously radio media personality as well, a writer and a speaker based out of Toronto. Make sure you check out her website, TashaCarradine.com. Give her a follow on Twitter. Thanks for your time today. It was great to catch up with you again. Oh, it's lovely, Ryan. Thank you so much. You bet, Tasha. Thanks very much. And of course, as mentioned tonight, uh, Jean Charest will officially uh, announce his candidacy. He'll officially declare uh, at a gathering down in Calgary, uh, Jean Charest, as they say, built to win. That's his uh, tagline. That's his campaign tagline. I'm seeing this as uh, Jean Charest versus Pierre Polyev, uh, not to discredit Dr. Leslin Lewis, not to discredit Patrick Brown, should he enter the race or anybody else. 
But that's what strikes me as the race. That That's, to me, the two that are going to be trading punches most prominently. Let me know what you think about this. I'd be I'd be curious to know if there's uh, perhaps a name out there that some of you are going, I'm, I'm, I wonder if this person's going to enter the race. Like, like Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, I think, went on the record and said that he was just, he said that he's not going to do it. Uh, you remember, he was one of the 14, though. And then he kind of pulled shoot and it That's went to 13. The last, <laughs> I thought, this is not the guy you want as the prime minister. He, he was like, I don't know. Do you call him the poor man's Donald Trump? I don't know if you call him the poor man's. He doesn't have as much money as Donald Trump. It's an Trump, excellent tagline. But he's also not declared bankruptcy like Donald Trump either. But <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think that Kevin O'Leary deserves to be part of this conversation. But 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 who is that? Who is the O'Leary this time around? Who, who's the candidate that, that the conservative members of our audience or the maybe undecided members of our audience that could be convinced to vote conservative? Is there a candidate out there? that would throw their name into the mix and you would go, you've got my attention. Like Dwayne takes me up on it right now. Dwayne hits the nail right on the head. What about Michael Chong? I'm going to say if Michael Chong were to enter this race, I would probably buy a membership to be able to cast a vote. I think I would. And I can tell that John of Hoyles and Hicks has no interest in commenting on this. Should we go to Hoyles? I don't know. I don't know if Sarah Hoyles could be could be convinced to buy a membership in the Conservative Party. Of She's Canada. laughing. Maybe, maybe we'll ask her when we go there in just a second. But first, uh, but first, let me remind you that right now, if you're looking for a new whip, whether that's a used car or a big heavy hauler, maybe you're looking for something to get your family out to the trailhead this summer or to pull your boat or to pull your trailer, but you're going, yeah, the budget's a little tight right now. Family's not really looking at biting off a six-figure new purchase. Why not shop the used inventory, the the pre-owned and certified inventory at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge? You can go visit their websites right now and check out that inventory, including the wholesale inventory. The cool thing about these two dealerships is when you start looking through the offerings, you realize they share their inventory, so you see a rig at one shop. They can get it to you, even if you're at the other location. They work together, their teams do, to ensure that you find exactly what you're looking for. And then that's the relationship where it starts. Then you've got your service relationship with them. It's all built on trust. And, of course, the return business is what they're most proud of. You can find Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge under the Sponsors tab on our website. Infinity Healthcare is based on relationships, personality matching. They know that many of you are responsible for the care of loved ones, whether it's your parents, your grandparents, perhaps your siblings that are receiving home care services or that could benefit from them, but you know they're not going to connect with these home care services unless it's a good fit. There could be barriers like language barriers, cultural barriers. Perhaps there's some form of, of, of sort of a preconceived notion that's standing in the way of your family member accepting home care. That's where Infinity comes in. You can find them online and learn more about their personality matching services at infinity-8.ca. Find out why more and more people are trusting Infinity Healthcare. And our friends at Park Power want to let you know they're aware that rates right now are difficult for a lot of families. Costs are on the rise. Uh, by the way, our Friday roundtable, you will not want to miss it this week. We're talking about gas prices through the roof and why it's happening. Park Power encourages you to take 
five minutes today and compare rates on electricity, natural gas, even internet. They do it all across the province of Alberta as your friendly local utilities provider. You take your business there using the promo code 2022-REALTALK. You get $70 off your first bill. If you take all your business there and bundle the services, you save on administrative costs. We always get excited when it times out exactly like that, John. You know, the, the music wraps and we're done. The As mention. a DJ, I got to respect your game. As a DJ, <laughs> there you go. Uh, Sarah Hoyle's the editorial producer of this show. So is there a candidate? Have fun with the question if you like. Is there a candidate that could enter the conservative leadership race where you would go, oh, I'm compelled by this person that may prompt you to buy a membership so you could cast a vote in September? I actually don't ever buy party memberships you've never held so, one uh i might have bought one many years ago but yeah. uh i try to make a practice of it that i don't align with any publicly align with any uh political party whether it's federal provincial anything like that i just uh as far as my profession goes i, I try not to yeah that is true objectivity and, and working in journalism for a long time, I mean, if, if, if it were to be revealed that a journalist were to hold a political party membership, it could be problematic for that journalist. I mean, you look at Leisha Corbella, the columnist. She's been on the show before, columnist for Post Media down out of Calgary in the Calgary Herald. Do you remember when it came out that she held a UCP membership and she was writing about the United Conservative Party? A lot of people cried foul on that. They said that that was a, a bad look on her. Um, I thought that Tasha had a really good assessment of what that race looks like, and 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 I can appreciate her points of why she's supporting Jean Charest. It's a tall order, though. You're saying she's got to unify conservatives across the country. Like, to speak plainly, you've got an interim party leader, and probably, if I can call Pierre Poliev, maybe not the front runner, but one of the front runners for sure. Uh, you could maybe even get away with calling him the favorite at this point, though I don't know. Charest's no slouch. Um, you have very different visions, right? You've got the interim leader of the party that was basically slapping the truckers on the back, saying, great job, keep it up, bringing them coffee and donuts as they occupied Ottawa. You're going to have a lot of other people, including all of the voters, the millions of them in Vancouver and Montreal and Toronto and other big urban centers that are going, as they said back in the day, homie, don't play that. Like, I'm not down with that. I can't get on board with the political party that's going to slap these guys on the back. So I'll be curious to see what Jean Charest can do about this. Homie, don't do that. Is that what you said? Homie, don't. Homie, don't play that. Homie, don't play that. Do you get the reference? I don't. From in living. Am I aging? Come myself? on, in living color. In living color. Come on, homie, okay. don't play that. Yeah, it was. It was like it was like one of my favorite skits of all time. But but <laughs> but the point is like, and, and I'm one of these people. It's like I'm sorry if 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 you're if you're part if part of your party's identity is that you were on board with the the hot tub and horn honk and truckers. Um, that's a non-starter. And I think if a leadership candidate's going to come out and say what I just said, then they're going to lose huge support from the social conservatives and from the hundreds of thousands of Canadians that supported that truck convoy. So it's a real, it's a really interesting time to be conducting uh, a leadership race prompted by the events that we're talking about defining the party, right? I mean, without that truck convoy, without the auto occupation, I don't know that the knives would have been out right now. Maybe they would have anyway, but for Aaron O'Toole, I think that was what pushed him over the edge. Oh, 100%. I mean, he was teetering on the edge after the fall election and, uh, and yeah. Trudeau was reelected. He was teetering on the edge, but I feel like, yeah, the trucker convoy, whether they meant to or not, they pushed O'Toole over the edge. And 
you know, forced the party, many of the party members to, you know, vote him out. I mean, my question to you, Ryan, is how long do you think the conservative, capital C, conservative party can continue to exist? When do they splinter? Ah, like, yeah. Yeah. Like how how long do you, are you saying, how long can they exist as one party, as a united party? Yeah. I well, can I say that? I think that that depends on what happens with the leadership race. I I think that there are, there are signs like this. Jean Charest campaign is not a joke and, um, and they've, they've got some pretty heavy and influential organizers working on it behind the scenes. Um, some of the people that I know that are, that have signed up to work on this campaign, uh, people that are speaking out in support of it or endorsing his campaign, it's a sign to me, Sarah, that I think that the 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 progressive conservative faction is back and is rising up and is intent on putting its stamp back on this party. But the question is, at what cost? And 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 if there is a splinter, where do they go? There are some existing parties, right? You have the the Maverick Party, which is led by Jay Hill. I mean, their key fundraiser is Tamara Litch, by the way, who was granted bail just the other day. So I, I don't know. Uh, we've talked to Jay. He's been on the show. People can can ar- check out our archives for that interview. Uh, they're essentially a Western separatist party. So th- perhaps some people migrate there. You've got, obviously, Maxime Bernier in the People's Party of Canada, the PPC, which polled, if I if I remember correctly, I think in the last election, would they get something like 3% of the, something like that, 3 4% of the vote-ish, approximately. Um, but but I don't know that, that people... You know, social conservatives that want to hold their head up high uh, and and maintain respect among their circles. I don't know. I, I think that that's a, a damaged brand. I think it's a problematic brand, the PPC. So does this mean that a new, respectable, federal, socially conservative party is formed? I don't know. I mean, I, if I'm being honest with you, Hoyles, I feel like the, the Conservative Party of Canada as is, is that socially conservative kind of right-wing party right to speak to speak in in provincial terms as we do and apply it to a federal party i would say that the conservative party of canada the federal party as is right now is what the wild rose party was in alberta right and i would say the same thing about the united conservative party the provincial party jason kenny's party it's the wild rose party as as one of kenny's strategists said to me once over old fashions uh and i won't say his name because that would betray his confidence but he says, we've got all the corruption of the PCs and all the craziness of the Wild Rose. And I said, that is a perfect description for your party right now. But it's more Wild Rose than it is PC. Do you know what I mean? And so probably the, the more fair question or the more intuitive question is, is there a progressive conservative party that launches across Canada? And if so, how long would it take to get that thing off the ground? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think the if folks are wanting to do the progressive conservative bent on things that, yeah, they're going to have to abandon the conservative moniker, like the actual conservative party moniker. They're not going to, I don't think they're going to rehabilitate it. I think that it needs, they need to start something new. Um, Maybe the progressive word will be re-infused. Who knows? Yeah. It's, it can't go anywhere in Alberta. I mean, Jason Kenney is still yeah. technically, well, he's still technically the leader of the progressive conservative party. Like the, you can't take that brand and run with it now. Um, unless I, unless I'm missing something, I should ask my good pal, Dave Cornway at Dave Berta. He knows everything, but I'm pretty sure that Kenny is still the leadership of the PCs and the UCP. Like you can't, yeah, you can't just start up the PC party right now. It's still, they have the lockdown on that brand. Uh, Interesting so, seeing yeah. is like they use the word progressive in in such a pejorative and dismissive oh, way. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Huh. Like yeah, like exactly. Yeah, progressive is like is supposed to be a slur now. 
And I've always asked people, what's the what's the opposite of progressive? Is it regressive? Like if you're not if you're not progressive, what are you doing? You sliding back? You like getting off digital, going back to analog. Everybody's going to go right like before surgery. There's no anesthesia or just take a swig of whiskey and bite on a stick. Is that kind of the political equivalent of what we're doing right now? I don't know. Um, hey, one of the things that we can do on this show is transition from laughing to something that's deadly serious. I think we're okay at it. Uh, I'm not sure if you noticed or not, Sarah, but after you and I connected out of the gates today, I, I, I launched a little Twitter poll. Um, it's unofficial. And it's unscientific, uh, but I invite people to participate on my Twitter account at Ryan Jesperson. I ask Jaskaret Singh Sadhu, the driver responsible for the Humboldt Broncos bus, cra- bus crash, will be deported after he completes his sentence. Do you think he should be allowed to stay in Canada? I gave you three options. Yes, no, or it's not that simple. So far, we've got 1,100 votes uh, over the course of about 40 minutes. Uh, 65%, Sarah, two out of three say, yes, he should be allowed to stay in Canada. 12% of people to this point say no, and 23% to this point say it's not that simple. Um, I'm not surprised to see the results. I'm not surprised to see two out of three people say that they think he should be allowed to stay in Canada. Some interesting comments. Jeremy, a good friend of the show, says he should 100% be allowed to stay. He's doing his time. He's owned his part in this unfortunate tragedy. Forcing him to leave is excessive, especially since the man he was working for got a lesser penalty. That's messed up. Deportation accomplishes nothing. Uh, JD says his crime was a devastating accident, not a malicious evil. He's not even fighting it. He pleaded guilty. He will live with this his entire life. Um, JD says if it's not about race, letting him stay is how we prove that. That's an interesting point. Olivia says he should be allowed to stay. His former employer should be in prison for the negligence that led to this tragedy. Glenn says, never have I seen such an obvious case of the punishment falling on the small fry. Sadhu spends years in jail and that's it. He says, I challenge anybody to point to any action taken or any lesson learned from the tragedy that changed the trucking system that caused this crash. Sarah, that's a great point from Glenn. A lot of people have said, and we've had roundtables, not on Real Talk, I will say, but on my previous radio show, conversations around what needs to happen in trucking and can Canadians feel safe on the highways. I don't know if you're the same as me. Um, And I know that there's tons of great and talented truckers out there. It's not a slight at the entire profession, but you even talk to truckers and they'll tell you if I'm driving on an undivided highway, I can't stand driving on undivided highways. It just, I I get white knuckles every time the car is coming at me. And when it's a big rig, you just, you know, these, some of these guys can be tired. I'm not saying that there's people out there impaired, but some people are, doesn't have to be big rig drivers could be anybody. Um, But I think that this tragedy forced people to ask questions about the state of the trucking industry in Canada, who's getting certified and licensed, how much training there is or is not, the hours that people are working, the log books that drivers are or are not keeping, and then, of course, some of the penalties that come along with it, and and those are all fair questions. Cameron says, I said, yes, he should be allowed to stay in Canada. He's serving time for what he did. This could have been any other truck driver born in Canada. It could have been the same tragic accident. And Tycho, or Tycho, says this brings up the greater subject of, uh, do you say retributive, 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 retributive justice versus restorative justice and how it plays into the larger scope of crime and punishment as a whole. We should be asking ourselves, what is the purpose of prison if a person continues to suffer after they are released? I appreciate this, Real Talkers. I know that these are tough questions. Even Sarah and I out of the gates today, we're kind of wrestling with it. there's, There's uncomfortable conversations that come as a result of this. 
You know, Sarah making a fair point makes me uncomfortable because I'm thinking about the families of the people. It's, there's so much that goes to this. There's so many reasons why so many people. I mean, I go to our relative's house just outside Humboldt. My parents-in-law live just outside Humboldt. They're probably listening today. I love you guys. I miss you. There's still a hockey stick outside their front door. Still. You drive through Humboldt. There's still hockey sticks all over the place. Like, why did this resonate with so many people? Tough conversations, and we're here for them all day. Here for them all day. Coming up tomorrow, a big part of the show is, of course, you know, going to be Trash Talk, and that's presented by our friends at Local Environmental. They've just redone their website, and, and of course, that's because they're continuing to grow their footprint. I mean, they're acquiring companies, adding to their team offerings, still family-owned, though, all the way through, have been for more than 25 years. They're not just garbage and recycling collection. They do water hauling, fencing, vacuum truck services, portable toilets. Maybe you need to bin for a temporary reason, like a, a roof Um, replacement at your home or or maybe you need something permanent like outside your new restaurant you're opening one up we want you to think of local environmental services you can find them online at localenvironmental.ca and if you've got something you got to get off your chest email it to us right now subject line trash talk at talk at ryanjesperson.com we also wanted to remind you about our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. you got to check out their Instagrams, in particular, the Baseline Road location in Sherwood Park and DQ Edmonton North on Instagram. They've got all of their offerings, this new signature stack burger collection. You've probably seen them. This is the buzz at Dairy Queen. They've revamped the entire burger menu. My personal recommendation is the loaded steakhouse burger with the onion rings and the bacon. You can make it a single, a double, or a triple. Ask for it by name, the signature stack burger at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and as mentioned, in Sherwood Park on Baseline Road. Coming up tomorrow, it's a Friday edition of Real Talk, and you know what that means. It means that we present, of course, our traditional Real Talk roundtable. But before we get to that, we're going to be talking about the connection between tensions in Ukraine and Coots, Alberta. Dr. Andy Knight is going to join us, a distinguished chair at Yale University, plus the price of gas. We know it's up. It's way up. But why? And what's the right thing to do about it? That's coming up tomorrow, right here on the show. We'll talk to you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, John Hicks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.